Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 1st, 2020. My guest is author Matthew Crawford. He is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture and author of Shop Class as Soulcraft. His latest book and the subject of today's conversation is why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. This is an homage to driving in cars, but it's about a lot more than driving. It's a set of deep meditations on how we might think about our relationship to technology and regulation. Matthew, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me, Russ. Let's start with the role of serendipity in life and in driving. Uh, you're uh, a fan of it. Tell me why. What's Why is serendipity, and for our maybe some of our non-English speaking listeners, what is serendipity? Well, serendipity is something that happens um, when you don't have a plan or, or maybe things don't go according to plan. And in particular, it's when things go well under those conditions, because of course things don't always go well. And I think that's part of the uh, the meaning that's in there with serendipity is that there's something, there's some kind of risk involved and it involves hope. Um, I like to quote my friend Garnett Cadigan, who wrote this beautiful essay, not about driving, but about walking. And he talks about stepping out onto an urban sidewalk, not knowing who or what you're going to encounter. Um, And he says that serendipity is a secular way of speaking of grace. It's unearned favor. And so I I try to tie that to the experience of riding a motorcycle through the woods on a trail where um, you're not encountering other people, but the the trail itself is so full of uh, surprises that it takes total concentration. And when I to push the pace, you know, beyond my actual skill set, and it goes well, I feel um, somehow enlarged. I feel existentially uh, energized. Um, So the book begins with this hunch that somehow risk is bound up with humanizing possibilities. And I wanted to explore that. Yeah. now, Sim Nicholas Taleb, who's been on this program many times, calls himself a flaneur, which is a French word, which means, I think, to stroll aimlessly, uh, to mm-hmm. let your thoughts go where they'll go, to see what you'll encounter without thinking about what that might be. And, of course, a lot of our life is spent trying to reduce that uncertainty, that surprise factor. Uh, I know when I go out for a, quote, exercise walk, I do a certain loop around my block. There's no serendipity except who else might be strolling. It's a pretty dull, safe experience. Um, and I think that's a, it's a great metaphor for how we can think about our lives. We've talked a lot on the program about the need. I think many young people feel they have a need for a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I understand that need. And for some people, that's appropriate. They, they want to be, if you want to be a doctor, 
got to start planning early. It's hard to get there. You can get there later in life, but it's really much, much harder. But for most of us, we're not sure what we want to be. And part of life is finding out what that is. And that serendipity part is enormous. It's um, it's a whole different way of seeing life, less as an algorithm to be executed and more as a, an adventure to be experienced. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I like that last formulation of yours, <clears throat> sort of contrasting it with something more algorithmic. Um, and of course, you know, we're, we've undertaken this grand sort of social uh, undertaking of, of rendering things algorithmically and, and automation. I think one way you could think of automation is that it's an attempt to um, uh, kind of eliminate those moments of openness or serendipity and replace it with machine-generated certainty. Um, on the supposition, well, usually uh, safety is invoked. And there also seems to be a presumption that human beings are, I don't know, incompetent or not to be trusted. Certainly in the driverless car space, the refrain is that human beings are terrible drivers. And, you know, it's hard not to, it's hard not to agree with that. But there is um, a kind of consistent... I don't know, uh, low regard for human capacities that seems to be operating there. Of course, if we're not careful, we'll meet those expectations. I have to say, when I'm commuting, uh, I don't really commute anymore, but if I'm on the the beltway here in the D.C. area, driving 60, 70 miles an hour at high speed with, oh, maybe 15, 20 feet, 30 feet maybe of, of space between me and, and and cars around me, maybe it's a little more than that. I do feel like I'm on a bit of an adventure, uh, and it amazes me that we don't kill ourselves every time we're out on in that. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the Blue Angels, the you know the air, aero uh, aeronautic uh, team, how they mm-hmm. can swoop and swerve in concert with such small margin for error is an extraordinary achievement. Of course, sometimes they fail, uh, but I feel that way driving. I do get a taste of that, even without being on a motorcycle. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, if you think about it, as 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 you are, it's it's an extraordinary kind of trust that we, yeah. where we do extend to one another a presumption of individual competence and paying attention. And um, you know, Tocqueville, when he came to America and traveled around as a Frenchman back in the the mid nineteenth century, one thing that struck him was that Americans um, have this kind of capacity to cooperate to achieve practical ends, maybe building a bridge or building a road. And he thought that it was in these small bore practical activities uh, that require cooperation and coordination that, that this served as a kind of nursery of certain aspects of the democratic personality. Um, he thought that um, that these um, capacities were important for collective self government. So that's interesting to think about. If we're kind of if we're going to relieve ourselves of the burden of that kind of coordinated action that we see on the road, does that have any implications for? Uh, the democratic character and possibly an atrophy of the kind of social intelligence that we are exercising on the road without really thinking about it. 
Well, it seems to me causation runs in the other direction, or at least both directions, right? I think mm. part of the reason that we have the government we have and our relationship with with the state that we have at least had historically is that it has something to do with American character and 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 nature. Um, our willingness to give up control and autonomy to a nanny state, to a wiser artificial intelligence, a wiser political class of experts, to me is is really the um, the underlying uh, problem here. So it's once that skill on the road that you're talking about atrophies. This I would call it the ability to look out for yourself and, and your own dreams and desires. And once you say, "Oh, they, whoever they may be, can take care of it." better than I can. So I'll just turn that control over. Uh, I think that's the, the the source source of the problem. I, ca- I can't help but think about that incredible scene in the movie Witness when they build a barn in a day. Uh, it gives me goosebumps just to think about it. And the idea of the, the kind of community it takes, it's an Amish community in this case, to, to, to make that happen is uh, it's just a magnificent example of the kind of cooperation you're talking about. In this case, it's an ordered cooperation that, that's intended on the road, it's a b- even more beautiful in a way because it's not intended. It just mm-hmm. emerges from our care and self-care and and our our trust of the and expectations of the people in the in the other cars. Yeah, and we have this exquisitely finely evolved capacity to predict one another's behavior. Yeah, there's some great cognitive science on this that suggests the the human mind is essentially organized as a prediction machine. And where it gets interesting is in this loop of reciprocal prediction where, you know, you you kind of stabilize your own behavior in order to make yourself more predictable to others. Um, And, um, you know, to to go back to Tocqueville, the ability to do just this without the supervision of the state or or maybe some tech you know technology that that does things for us you know i think it's not always the state that yeah. is kind of eroding um force here that is eroding of of um our our sort of social capacities but uh, a kind of supervisory technocratic regime and uh yeah it's interesting to think about I mean, driving is, of course, just one example. There are many other aspects of our lives that have this, this, um, this structure and this, this. I would call it, you know, sort of a, a creeping paternalism. Um, yeah, and it's interesting to think how. Um, I mean, often the the paternalism these days does proceed under the banner of technological improvement. Uh, with driverless cars, I think you can regard that as one instance of this wider pattern in our relationship to the material world in which the demands of skill and competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. And that, that safety element is, is interesting because, um, well, a couple of things. First, I think there is a kind of dispositional evolution wherein the safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk appears. Um, But also, because of that um, kind of change in our disposition, I think it makes us more susceptible to claims made on behalf of safety, which are not always in good 
phase. We can talk about red light cameras shortly. Yeah, we're going to talk about this. Well, go ahead. Yeah, but the, the larger point I want to make here, though, is that um, safety becomes a kind of lever of moral intimidation that can be used to arrest criticism of some program that might be pursuing something quite other than safety. Yeah, and of course, it's, sometimes it's just well-intended. Um, I mean, we're in the middle of COVID and the pandemic. It's a perfect example of the kind of thing you're talking about. All kinds of things are claimed to be justified because they save lives, um, which often is worth doing, uh, saving lives. But always important to remember that it's hard to believe, but most of us don't live forever. So saving lives is a bit – actually, it's a bad phrase. It, it mis it, – it, it's not illuminating. It, it covers up what's actually happening. It's extending life is what we're talking about, which is also a good thing. I'm all in favor of it. But we don't – I think there is a trade-off there as to what we are willing to give up to extend our lives. And let, let's talk for a minute before we go back. We'll come back to this in, in, in more detail. But I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about the familiar so I think we as human beings, somebody was asking me about bedtime stories for kids, and I was reminiscing about how uh, my kids liked quirky. I would occasionally tell them a quirky story, but I had a whole set of stories and stories that I told and that I read to them where everything was predictable, and they found that deeply comforting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they loved – and you know, the prediction machine is part of that story, the brain. They loved knowing what was coming next anticipating yeah. it, hearing it reinforced. Occasionally, I'd surprise them. They like that too. But you know, I, I personally, I think I romanticize risk and surprise and adventure. But deep down, mm -hmm. I think I'm a pretty cautious person. I think I've been on a motorcycle once, Matthew, which is less than you've been on one. Uh, so I, I, I have trouble um, walking the walk, I think, in this area. But I do think there is a side of our humanity that likes the predictable, likes the safe, Take out the risk. Give me the technology. Give me the pill. Give me the, give me the regulation that protects me. I don't have to think about it anymore. And you're really advocating this book for a, a more adventurous role for for living. And so defend that or, or react to my point about familiarity. Yeah. Well, first about children. I think children are inherently conservative. Um, you know, they they like they like routine and they like um, the familiar and. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. I mean, one of my favorite thinkers is Michael Oakeshott, who, who talks about conservatism as not a hankering after the past, but rather an affection for the present, for what actually exists, and being kind of um, feeling gratitude for, for the present. So there's that. Now, what you just said about... Um, risk. Yeah. I guess there are two things. You could say that this taste for risk is a decadent um, phenomena of a sort of late modern culture where we're so safe that we have to seek out risk uh, sort of artificially, you know, bungee jumping or something, whatever. Um, so you could take it as an index of some kind of gnawing I don't know, self-doubt at the heart of the, the bourgeois experience, where we're so uh, insulated from the risk of physical harm. I think for men especially, um, it's like there's this question that goes unasked of you. And it's a question you want to know the answer to, which is, 
you know, how am I going to fare up against, you know, a moment of of real physical risk? So, so there's that. Um, so that would be to cast it as a kind of you know a decadent phenomena, but you can flip that around. So Nietzsche, as you know, talks about the last man, who's this character who appears at the end of history, who's only concerned with his own safety and comfort and convenience. And he finds this contemptible creature. Um, (laughs) I think these are both true. Which, what do you mean? Well, I mean, Nietzsche has a real insight there that there is something less than human in a being who, um, you know, is is that devoted to comfort and and safety and convenience, uh, and also you know a preoccupation with um, you know overcoming that can itself become uh, uh, I don't know a kind of a form of perversity maybe I don't know that's why that's what I took you to be uh, gesturing at yeah it. No, I am perversity there it reminds me of. Um wonderful folk song not really a folk song but it's by richard thompson who gets called a folk singer i think he's the author it's called the wall of death and on the surface it's the song about an amusement park ride and of course amusement park rides are they're a little bit dangerous they can be in the old days they were actually dangerous now they give the illusion of danger without much of the danger but the um you know the the refrain or one of the lines in that song is let me take my chances on the wall of death and I think that um, I encourage listeners, we'll put a link up to that song. It's an extraordinary. I love the song. The music and lyrics are amazing. But it's basically uh, making fun of the safer rides at the amusement park. But, of course, it's a metaphor for life. And I think the question of being tested, the ideas yeah. that are in the poem If by Kipling, they're mm. not modern ideas anymore. You're, you're very much a 19th century man, Matthew. I, am, I have a little of that myself. Yeah, I th- let's let's make a I think an important distinction here. So there's the amusement park ride that's scary, um, doesn't require any skill, right? It's an entirely passive activity. That's true. Um, I want to lump that together with, say, Russian roulette, mm-hmm. which uh, is risky, um, but similarly, um, there's no skill involved. And I want to contrast both of those with, say, riding a motorcycle on a canyon road at 11, um, where you're, you are, the reason it's so, um, God, it's, it's so awesome is that you're, you're kind of at the edge of your abilities and you're pushing your abilities further. Nietzsche said that joy is the feeling of your powers expanding and they only, expand if you if you push it right and and that i think replicates the experience of childhood where you know initially a toddler their body they don't really have control over it they're you know they're learning to walk and climb things they fall and they get hurt but they're gaining these new um new powers and uh, i mean it's it's it is a source of joy. And I think when we start using things with wheels like skateboards and bicycles, it's a continuation of that process where these, these artifacts become almost prosthetics or sort of extensions of our, of our bodily capacities. So, 
I think we are a hybrid creature. We're not simply pedestrians. We incorporate machines into our embodied mode of getting around. And it means that there's almost an infinite kind of headroom of uh, further skills that one can develop. So there is a kind of athleticism that can involve machines, such as uh, riding motorcycles. I'm going to try a different approach on that. I, I love that. It's beautiful. Uh, I, and I confess, I'm trying to think, what's the analogy for my life? It's, uh, I guess, writing something under deadline. I feel an exhilaration of mm-hmm. when I can, when the music, when the words still sing and I'm writing under pressure, it mm-hmm. is exhilarating. And it comes from a feeling of being able to write that I did in a way that I didn't have, say, when I was younger. So I, I, that's my closest, I think I have to think about it, but that's my closest thought to that. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't some people say that's just childish? I mean, come on. Riding, riding, sure. When you're when you're 11 or eight, riding a bike down a, a dangerous path, but shouldn't you leave that behind? I mean, what's what's the point? And I, when I read the book Into Thin Air, I thought, what? Which is about a bunch of people who climb Mount Everest as, as sort of amateurs and push themselves to the limit. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't come back. Some of them are damaged irrevocably. It's it's a tragic book. But part of the tragedy is like, why? And you're mm-hmm. giving part of the answer. You know. We have to push up against our physical limits. It's part of who we are as human beings. But couldn't you argue it's just kind of a it's a mistake? I mean, I, your book's extraordinary. I mean, there's so many things in there where I thought, I wonder if he's going to survive. Oh, I guess he will. He wrote the book. But um, <laughs> I, I, defend that. Defend that level of risk taking. Well, I'm not. I don't know where you're getting that. I don't, I'm not. I'm not a daredevil. <laughs> I, I report on some daredevil stuff. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's fair yeah. enough. So I I, uh, I go to a demolition derby and check that out and drifting, uh, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm intrigued by these arenas of you know sort of gladiatorial combat. And as you know, there's I've found this thinker who sheds enormous light on what I found in these venues. It's a Dutch historian named Johan Huizinga, who wrote a book called Homo Ludens. So that's Latin for, you know, man who plays. And he found the play, um, the spirit of play means that you're, you're daring something, you're enduring tension and risk and uncertainty and it also has a social dimension. He said it's, uh, it combines friendship and hostility, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So the examples he gives are ritualized combat, uh, competitive dances. So he's looking at different archaic societies. Um, but he also, you think of things like the, the rap battles of, uh, of the 90s, where it's... Um, you know, stylized insult trading and boasting matches. You know, so it's a very macho kind of energy. And Heisinger finds play to be the basis of civilization. He thinks that it's in, in our games uh, that you can find the origins of, of social order. Because after all, you have to submit to the, the rules of the game. And it's usually some play community that sets itself off from the wider community and develops these internal norms and standards. And they push each other ever further. 
And it's in that pushing, that rivalrous um, pushing each other that that new you know new forms of creativity emerge. So. Yeah, I, I've talked many times on here about the moment after a football game when the people on the field who experience have experienced something like what you're talking about uh, that the rest of us really can't fathom. Have mm-hmm. that respect for each other that after they've tried to really hurt themselves each other that they somehow manage to embrace and and salute each other. We see that in hockey too, which is an incredibly right. dangerous sport. And yet at the end of the Stanley Cup, there's an a there's a powerful comrade camaraderie of of yeah. shared warriorship that's part of what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think that's that is something that is acutely missing from the general run of life today that experience of solidarity a solidarity that's forged in um well i mean you used the word comradeship i think that's that's perfect yeah my dad used to make fun of frisbee frisbee uh, i think he'd make fun of ultimate frisbee too i i can't remember whether he also made fun of it but ultimate frisbee is it is competitive a little bit you do score for main regular frisbee is just pure play without the competitive part Ultimate Frisbee has this competitive part, but it's been um, sanitized to be as the, the, the highest risk you generally face, as far as I know it, in the casual games are that you, you, Frisbee might hit you, piece of plastic, uh, but there's no checking or tackling or rugby-like mm-hmm. uh, activity. And uh, he viewed it, my dad viewed that as a sort of uh, Frisbee generally as an example of how we have tried to take competition out of modern life. So talk about talk about that a little bit because that's related to what you're talking about. You just you use that phrase. You, you defend competition as part of the human experience. Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, you know we it's competition doesn't sit very well with the egalitarian faith, right? Because people win and other people lose, and we're all and- winners. Come on. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's just it. We have this um, kind of idea of, of self-esteem as something that is crucially important to a child and that we're all sort of equally entitled to it. And kids need to be imparted with this self-esteem as though it is something one could impart without you know them earning it. So this is, um, yeah, this is a kind of feminized uh, morality. It's a highly democratic morality. Uh, Freud has some interesting thoughts on, you know, the different roles of mothers and fathers in the development of a child. So in the, you know, earliest infancy, uh, he called that the stage of infantile narcissism. So that the mother is like an extension of himself and who, who takes care of all his needs and um, the child has no sense that the world is something separate from himself. And so in, in throughout life, you know, the, the mother, the sort of the image is of that she provides this unconditional love. Whereas the father's role is to convey to the child the image that an indifferent other person would have of him. In other words, the father is the conduit for these impersonal norms and standards, which if you rise to meet them, 
um, the world confers on you a kind of recognition. And it's a powerful recognition. Um, so if you kind of short circuit that process of getting out of yourself, out of that self-absorption of, you know, the mother's love, uh, through this doctrine of equal esteem, it means that you're not going to, um, achieve that, that kind of worldly recognition. And it's interesting that, that kind of, that we're talking about the superego now, these impersonal demands and standards that apply to everybody, a shared standard. That's really the basis for a democratic social order to have a, a single kind of standard that applies to everyone and, and you meet it or you don't. And I think there's a tension then between this democratic morality, which I'm calling kind of feminized of, of equal esteem on the one hand, and on the other hand, this requirement that we all uh, answer to the same, you know, or some set of um, kind of shared standards. Because if you don't have that, you have something more like, you know, the ancien regime of special privileges and special exemptions. Um, well, which, no, it's, it's, you know, Hayek writes about this extensively. It's, it's the, the, the ability of each of us to anticipate and have expectations based on the norms that we share of, of what is considered proper behavior is what allows us to pursue our own desires, but in a way that is that doesn't encroach on yours and often allows us to create cooperation through, say, the market that that has, you know, extraordinarily beneficial impacts on, on us both in material and non-material ways. It's very Smithian, very similar to what Adam Smith talks about in the theory of moral sentiments. He invokes the impartial spectator as this observer of your behavior that forces you to step outside your natural self-interest. I yeah. don't think Smith read Freud, <laughs> but it's possible Freud read Smith. I sure. don't know of it, uh, yeah. but that's a very interesting observation. Does Smith – I just want to – I haven't read the theory of moral sentiments. Does Smith um, – in any way introduce this idea of kind of the maternal figure versus the paternal figure? No, no. Smith okay. doesn't have any of uh, – he was very careful not to be politically incorrect, Matthew. Um, <laughs> uh, more seriously, not that I remember, uh, and, and Smith never married, uh, so he was never a father. He probably – he was very close to his mother, lived with her a, a good chunk of his life as an adult. Uh, he, this is not an area that his armchair theorizing probably would have lit upon, uh, but it is a very uh, – it's a fascinating speculation uh, that is, you know, again, it's not uh, it's not considered politically correct, but I think it's uh, – we ignore some of that at our peril, th that our, our urge to treat men and women and fathers and mothers as identical, as interchangeable is probably not consistent with our genetic – uh, evolutionary inheritance is my guess. Yeah, and or our our social evolution of um, you know the, the rule of law, for example. I mean, what is that but um, the the sort of binding standards that apply to all? Which, of course, was a signature accomplishment in the Western tradition: the rule of law, as opposed to the arbitrary uh, will of of, of a capricious sovereign. I think about this a lot as a parent, actually. And I don't know if it's necessarily male-female differences, but I notice how it spills over into other areas of life, right? 
There's a form of parenting that says everything's negotiable. Everything's an, an object of discretion. So you have misbehaved. Let's hear your excuses and maybe I'll forgive you. Mm-hmm. Versus uh, you broke the rules. This will, these are the consequences. And the rule of law, I've never really thought about it, is just the is the natural extension of that. It's rather um, powerful. Where And it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. They want to have exceptions. You know, there's always, quote, extenuating circumstances. And I think people forget that when you live in a world of extenuating circumstances, they become more common. They're not a fixed objective category. I think we're in this conversation replicating the uh, the whole history of the concept of law, you know, the, the sort of Old Testament idea of law. It, it really does speak in the imperative voice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in the Christian kind of innovation, there's more emphasis on mercy, I think. Well, I'm not sure that's true, actually, that it's really a departure from Judaism. But in any case, the idea of mercy means a departure from the strict standards of justice, uh, you know, whether it's extenuating circumstances or I think more precisely, it's, it's not based on some claim of extraordinary or strange circumstances, but rather it's, um, it's usually a, a, a sort of gracious grant by the political authority that stands outside of justice. It's a moment of, you know, forgiveness or grace um, that is not in any way justified. It stands outside of justice. And sometimes it's cronyism, not quite as attractive. Sure, but- <laughs> right. That's the problem. Yeah, I, just a quick Side note on Judaism, I, I think Judaism gets a very bad rap um, as, you know, I think I think it's useful to have a concept of, quote, the Old Testament God, but it's not the God actually in the Old Testament. Okay, sure. The actual God of the Hebrew Bible is complicated. At one point, God gives a self-description of rachum v'chanun, erech apayim, rav chesed v'yamet, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, full of kindness and truth. We could really write a great book on this, Matthew, a, a Freudian interpretation of of the uh, of Hebrew scripture, where God embodies both male and female attributes, which, of course, is the Jewish conception of God. Um, probably both all of it's politically correct. So I'll just move on. Um, okay. I, I want to talk. Let's let's talk about self driving cars. A lot of the, a lot of the the book uh, deals with that, and I think I was uh, seduced by the claims of the advocates in it was about four or five years ago when they said, this is coming. It's just a technical problem. We'll solve it in the next year or two. And we're going to save 35,000, 40,000 lives a year in the United States and even more abroad once they can afford these technologies. And um, it's going to be great because, you know, I, we did an episode with Benedict Evans on this. I've done many episodes on it. I mean, the idea of that in my commute, I can sit back, put on my headphones, read, work on my computer, have a drink. It's fantastic. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with self-driving cars? I, I totally get the appeal. I think if I had a, you know, a daily commute through bumper-to-bumper traffic on the freeway, I would totally want one of these for just this reason to sort of free you up to do something else. Um. So I guess there's a, f- a few ways to approach this. Um, one would be simply to note that this merely technical challenge, engineering problem, has turned out to be yeah. a lot more uh, 
challenging than they were saying or thought it was going to be even five years ago. So the the horizon when this is supposed to happen has been pushed back and back. And there's been a lot of, you know, consolidation of these firms kind of, you know, investors get starting to, you know, get skeptical about this. So there's that. Um, there's also the problem of, you know, which sort of maps onto the more general problem of automation, where we're talking about the disruption in the labor force that's likely to happen. So as it turns out, um, about two-thirds of the states in the nation, um, this is the case, that men without a college degree, the number one occupation for that demographic is some form of driving, delivery, trucking, whatever. Um, So you're talking about a massive, if this were to come to fruition, a massive dislocation in the labor market in precisely that demographic that um, is sort of the, the natural home of that middle American radical who stands behind the populist uh, kind of moment, right? So you're talking about intensifying a a political um, tension uh, in a big way. Well, there's millions of those people too. It's it's hard. It's sometimes people don't know how don't think much about how many cab drivers and truck drivers there are. It's millions of people. Um, The Economist and my youthful self would be prone to say, "Oh, but." They'll find new jobs. New technologies will come will spring up to replace them, the jobs that have been lost, because people have more money and 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 capital to, to Wait, who has more money? We. <laughs> oh, right. the the economy. Yeah, the, the gross economy. domestic right. product. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. So it's funny uh, how when you aggregate like that, all these problems disappear. Yeah, I I saw recently in uh Michael Blaslin's book, uh, The Hidden Half. I think he tells us that where I saw this the the defender of of uh, European Union explaining to the uh, British working class woman that that uh, GDP is going to go up if we stay in the EU and it'll go down, and she says something like, "Not my bloody GDP, <laughs> my GDP is not not ours. Who's ours? Mine's what I care about." And I, yeah. it, it's a relevant. It is a rel- very relevant point that um, the aggregation it hides some strong distributional impacts. Um, And then the economist waves his or her hands and says, yeah, but they'll get training. And my answer is usually, and their children will be better off. Their children will inherit a better world because they'll have all these new opportunities that will come along. And um, there's some truth to that. I still believe that mostly when when I look at technological change and trade. But there's some people that that are getting left behind. And we either need a different education system to help them Originally, you said they, there's the people who don't get a college degree. I don't think everybody should get one, by the way. I'm very much against that as a as a policy. But um, there are other ways to cope with this socially other than to stop technological change. But uh, you're just I, I don't know where you are on that spectrum. Do you think we should just we should just think twice about it, or do you think we should stop it? I don't think the issue is even technology. I mean, um, it's. There's a kind of techno mysticism that that talks as though <clears throat> all these things are inevitable, and then there's the hand waving about you know we'll all be better off and we'll, we'll, everyone will be retrained 
But in fact, what you're talking about is very particular uh, firms with, you know, huge lobbying presence in D.C. arranging things to remake our infrastructure uh, in ways that will result in massive new concentrations of wealth and transfer of wealth. That's not technology, that's political economy. And I think um, we very easily confuse the two. Um, and further, there's a kind of program of inducing such confusion. And one element of that is this assertion of the inevitability. This is coming, um, which you know kind of demoralizes any kind of political opposition to it. And uh, so this idea of technological progress as this inevitable thing, um, I think it does a lot of work on behalf of, you know, whoever has um, the kind of relationships uh, with government often to, to, to bring about some vision and impose it upon everybody else. So that sounds pretty sinister. Um, I'm going to defend the yeah. I'm going to defend the other side a little bit, um, okay. and then I want to give you some um, credit for getting me to rethink some of my thoughts on this area. But um, what I want to push back on is that you know, some of the things that we've achieved, just your smartphone, there's such GPS, you know, ways which is uh, the anti serendipity. Uh, the closest thing to serendipity is is the you know the voice of ways telling you to recalc is recalculating. Because you've made a wrong turn, and it's now going to re-steer you back onto the right path. Um, but it is an extraordinary human achievement of what we've been able to do, and the and the the um, collection of human knowledge, our access to it via technology, and the fact that that you know a self forget self driving. Let's talk about a self parking car. I mean, that's a glorious thing. <laughs> but more, I, I, I'm being facetious. But the part that's serious is that. Our ability to mold the world around us with the combination of, of brains and, and bytes, digital technology, is, is really quite extraordinary. And I don't think we should denigrate it relative to things like, say, the physical command that, that say, riding a motorcycle on a canyon road does. Because they're not – I don't think they're that dissimilar as, as examples of, of human flourishing. Yeah, so in the book, as you know, I, I – um have a very concerted celebration of internet technical forums um, as these venues where people share knowledge. And um, so where I have most benefited from this is in the, the hot rodding scene where people have pushed the state of the art of the internal combustion engine to places no one could have anticipated even 20 years ago. Um, right now, I'm building an engine that will get about six times the horsepower it was designed for. And that's based on a couple of things. One is electronic engine management. So it's going to be all sort of digital, you know, every parameter of the motor controlled. In this sort of, there's a do-it-yourself platform for doing that. But more important are, are these technical forums where people are sharing knowledge. And you may have come across this in these, um, you know, the YouTube tutorials where it's so easy to find how to do something that would have completely stumped you 
Yeah. Uh, before that. So there's an example of, I call this folk engineering. It's this widely disseminated uh, quasi-collective efforts of, of innovation that cumulatively, you know, can really take us to new places. And it's all made possible by the internet. So this is not an anti-technological screed. I mean, I am myself a technologist, but I do bring, as you rightly detect, a jauntist and cynical um, kind of presumptive um, skepticism to uh, the remaking of, um, of things in this quasi-compulsory way by big tech which I think doesn't quite deserve the mantle of progress that it that we just kind of automatically um, defer and and grant to it. And I think people are waking up to yes, that, right? Are. I mean, this, I mean, this that's no longer a presumptive um, thing we're willing to extend to big tech, and especially in Europe. But but here too, I think that that honeymoon is over. Yeah, and it it happened over the last five years or so for me. Uh, you know, I. I used to extol their virtues, and then I got uncomfortable with it. And now I realize, yeah, maybe I should be uncomfortable with it. It's it's not as um, shouldn't be as celebrated, perhaps as 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 we uh, are tempted to have it be. I just would mention to listeners that your remarks about folk engineering remind me of Matt Ridley's episode recently on how many of the great innovations of of humanity came from people just messing around who weren't trained in the yeah. area or just uh, hobbyists. Uh, and it, that's the highest compliment you can give somebody sometimes. Not only that, but um, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the history of um, thermodynamics, the scientific theory. So I was a physics major in college. And so theoretical thermodynamics was just kind of trapped in this dead end back um, up until, I don't know, the mid-19th century, I guess. Um, now mechanics at the time were working out how to make steam engines. So there are certain relationships between temperature, pressure, and volume that were observed and incorporated into the designs. And it was that development of the steam engine that caused a breakthrough in physics, in theoretical thermodynamics. It got them off the caloric theory of heat, that it's a kind of fluid um, so, and Aristotle actually points to this phenomena where he says it's people who are in intimate daily um, involvement with nature, he's talking about craftsmen, who sometimes are able to see things more clearly uh, than the kind of theoretician. So, I mean, obviously it works both ways. Yeah. That's just a it's just a beautiful thing, and I think the our desperate attempts as as creatures to alter our environment there's something very heroic about it um and and it being widely dispersed and millions of people doing it that's that's a key thing there right sure and and the you're talking about the internet as a way that that knowledge gets collected and coordinated. The marketplace does that with prices in certain settings where the the knowledge I have in my local setting area of availability, of usefulness, of alternatives, of substitutes, their prices, that's only known, that knowledge is incredibly dispersed. It's not collected in any way. 
And what the marketplace is able to do is utilize that knowledge despite the fact that it's not collected. What what the internet's doing for hobbyists and do-it-yourselfers and hot rodding and other things, of course, knitting. We we had you know Virginia Postral talking about textiles recently. What what the internet's doing is allowing that to happen without the mediating role that prices usually play in collecting information. Interesting. Yeah. So where does that? I mean, we're sort of back to the uh, the early sort of enthusiasms that surrounded the internet. The information will be free. Um, so I think there are there are some of these cases that we're talking about now where that those hopes have been realized. But you're you're the economist here. Where does it? And you're comparing the market and its sort of mechanisms of discovery mm-hmm. with the internet, where there is no price because there's no cost, uh, there's no marginal cost of ex- exchanging information. That seems like a, a fundamental difference. Yeah, there could be such a cost, but often there isn't. There's no commerce is how I would describe it. There's mm-hmm. often, these things are exchanged as a form of not barter, just exchange. Uh, you know, I willingly, freely, I'm hoping maybe to get some reputational advantage. I, uh-huh. I put an entry and I fix something on Wikipedia. I enter something into Wikipedia. I put up a video that I'll never collect any money for that tells people how to unclog their uh, their drain. Um, that wouldn't be me. That was hypothetical. Uh, I'll, I'll be the one looking at that video and trying to figure it out. Um, but but those are, they are different. But the, But the underlying... The underlying – they're solving a similar problem. The problem is is that knowledge is dispersed in the brains of individuals. It's not collected and cataloged. This is one of the deepest insights into economics that's not fancy, but it's still very deep. And I think of it as being – I associate with Hayek. I associate it with James yeah. Buchanan, that the market is a dis- – use the word discovery, discovery process – so if I want to know the best way to deal with the high price of some product, I can't look it up. I have to discover it, yeah. and someone has to innovate it sometimes. And someone has to find out, oh, yeah, this material can be used for this purpose that wasn't available before. But this, the incentive to do that has been created by the scarcity of, the, of a different product. Yeah, I love this um the the theoretical ideal of the free market as this epistemic kind of instrument. Um, I mean, there's a profound insight there into the nature of knowledge, the limits of expertise when it's, yeah. you know, enclosed in a single cranium and all that. If we sort of return this back to our political discussion, uh, you know, some people say, well, there's never, it's a beautiful idea. There's never been an actual free market um, I don't know about that, but it does seem to be the case that, let's say, over the last 30 years, there's been the party of the market. Uh, in the U.S., it's been the Republican Party. Yeah, they talk a good the, game. They're not such, they really don't do much. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a crony capitalism yeah. is what we've got. Yeah. And, and so the distinction between monopoly uh, pr- pricing and or you know you know an economy in which the relationship with the state through lobbying is an absolutely crucial element that's a very different uh 
than this ideal we're talking about. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think um, the fact that 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 the quote free market is an is an abstract ideal. I, I think that's a um, that's a that's not a uh, ending argument. The people who make it often claim they treat it like, oh, see, whole thing's nonsense, doesn't exist. I think that misses the point. It certainly misses the point in the way that the economists that I respect talk about the market. They understand it's imperfect, flawed. The question is compared to what, and does it achieve the kind of things that we're talking about here? To bring these two threads together, I would argue that there's nothing uh, perfect or necessarily ideal about the workings of the emergent order that commerce creates. The desire for more, the desire for profit, the desire for better, the desire for cheaper that we all have as consumers or as, as producers. These are things that yield outcomes that are often glorious, but they also often lead to outcomes that are not so attractive. So I think the mistake that economists have made is in gilding that lily, treating it as if somehow everything that comes out of these decentralized choices must be good. You can make an argument like that. That's the flawed argument. But you don't want to then go the other way and say, and therefore, none of this orderliness can be created no. without fill in the blank. Yes, you do need property rights. You need some kind. It's not an anarchy argument. But the question is, how much of that do you need? And I think often you need very little government supervision field outcomes that most people would agree are very attractive. The question is, do you want to empower that government to then hand out goodies? It's sort of a, it's hard. But, oh, go ahead. No, I, I appreciate that. So there are different f forms that government involvement can take. One that's worried about by libertarians is the regulatory um, function and the worry there is, again, an epistemic one. You don't know what you're doing in the way that price, you know, has this kind of revelatory mm -hmm. quality about people's actual order of preferences. So there's that regulatory function, but then there's this other kind of backdoor function of um, sort of state capitalism, of picking winners and losers and it's interesting, the, the party of the market, so-called, you know, became the party of, of big business, maybe it always was. So there, um, that's a matter of kind of trying to get on the right side of, um, of decision makers in, in government. But we're not talking about regulation now. We're talking about... Um, setting things up in a way that, that prefer uh, one kind of industry over another. I don't know. I'm, I've kind of wandered off No, here. but I think that's a great – that's a very relevant point. I think it, the conflation of being pro-market with pro-business is evil. Oh. It's a terrible mistake. And yet it's so common. Yes, it is. And I, and I think what you're saying is the reason it's common, and I would agree with you, is it's convenient. It's a useful myth to believe that what's good for General Motors is good for the nation, what's good right. for the stock market is good for the nation, we're told. These are, yeah. these are not true, and the privileging of certain types of entities uh, in the name of a grander outcome is, um, is the road to hell. So there's another tradition here that I think in some ways is quite parallel to the free market ideal, but has 
completely different origins, which is the uh, the distributivist ideal. I, I I don't know much about this, but I associate it with Catholic social thought. But the idea is that decision making should be devolved to sort of the lowest or most local level. Um, now, some things you know are appropriately decided at, at the highest or most common levels, but but as a general principle, to devolve um, decision making down, which of course fits this ideal of um, the market where it's the exchanges between individuals that is the 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 ground, the sort of epistemic ground truth, um, and if you're going to sort of decide things um, in a way that abstracts from that, you need to be aware of possible unintended consequences and all that. So we should maybe both go and read some of this, uh, I think it's called distributism, distributivism. In the- I don't know anything about that, but it, but it strikes me that the parallel is, is federalism. The idea mm. that political decisions should be devolved into the Local canton in Switzerland, or the local, or the state, or this municipality in the United States, and it's um, a lot to be said for it, and it's got a lot of challenges. But I want I want to come back to this issue of big tech because you have a lot of. I started. I wanted to give you credit for making me rethink some of my thoughts on this. I, we had Shoshana Zuboff on the program, uh, worried about Google, and uh, I pressed her and said, you know, you know, I, I just. They're trying to sell me a bunch of stuff. I get it. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like Google and, and these large tech companies. They The analogy I have is the, the repair person who comes into your house to fix your washing machine, and they say, yeah, oh, I'm not going to charge you. Oh, wow, that's so nice. But I did take a lot of photographs of um, of stuff in your house so I could learn about what your preferences are, and I'll be sending you some ads for those things because uh, I've, I've learned something about you. I sell this these photos to companies that that like that. Are you okay with that? Actually, they don't tell you. They're, they don't ask if you're okay with it. They just say, oh, it's a free repair. And you go, oh, this is great. So, you know, one of the ironies, I think, or not ironies, paradox, is that Google is, quote, free, which is amazing because you do get incredible, I get incredible value from it in many ways. Huh. But they are selling stuff. It's just not directly. I'm the middleman. I'm the middle person. I'm the product that they're selling. They're selling access to me. And one part of me says, this is what I said to Shoshana Zubov, well, if I don't want to buy, I don't have to. What's the harm? Don't I really want ads that are tailored to me? And you got me to rethink that a little bit. You can you can take a stab at it first, and then I'll give you credit if you want. Well, I mean, I, I learned a lot from Zuboff's book, uh, the, the Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and sort of take, it, take that up uh, and ask, I have a, a chapter titled, If Google Built Cars. So just to rehearse the basic logic that that she lays out, um, so, you know, the cynic's dictum is if you don't know what the product is, you're the product. But it turns out that's not quite right on her account. What you are is a source of behavioral data, which is then manufactured as this raw material, which is manufactured into a prediction product which is then sold in this sort of open exchange of real-time um, is it behavioral futures market, is what she calls it. Now, um, so the, the ideal in this 
surveillance economy is to be able to intervene in the very moment uh, where you know your behavior is being analyzed in real time and you're susceptible to being nudged one way or another. And this is going to happen beneath the threshold of awareness. Um, so she talks about all the kind of subtle means of doing that. So then the question is, well, what if this, um, the, the economic logic of the internet were to slip the bounds of the screen and start to order the physical environment where you don't have the option of unplugging? And I think the, uh, the best example of that is this idea of the smart city where, you know, everything would be surveyed and things like trash collection, police protections, um, deliveries, the allocation of scarce road surface at different times a day, all this would be managed by an urban operating system. And presumably, you know, Google would make the trains run on time because they're good at that. Um, so what is, what's the downside? Well, it's something a little harder to articulate, but um, essentially you're talking about the city being run now, not by a democratically elected city council, but by a cartel of tech firms using sort of proprietary uh, knowledge that is utterly obscure to you and inaccessible so what you're talking about is a loss of any control over the institutions that you're living within. Uh, so that doesn't sit very well with our liberal political tradition. Yeah, we talked about that, she and I did. And I thought, my first thought was, well, smart city compared to the ones most of us live in, where the <laughs> trash doesn't get picked up so well, traffic's hideous, yeah. you name yeah. it. <clears throat> There's a certain appeal yeah. to it, I get. Sure. Um you could choose not to live there in theory. That would be the equivalent of unplugging. But, of course, the the goal would be to have every city be smart. Who would want to live in a dumb city? Yeah. And I think the um, – you know, there's no traffic accidents in, in this Oz-like place. Um, there's also no man behind the curtain, by the way. It's just a algorithm that's moving the trains around and the cars and the – the groceries, I don't have to go to the grocery, but I don't want to shop instantly. It knows when I'm out of stuff. It's fantastic. I don't even have to log on, and, and it just shows up in my box, and it's a physical yeah. box, all my stuff. I think that's a very appealing vision. So um, tell me why we should be afraid of it. And I think maybe we should be. It's hard for me, well, but I think maybe we should be. Yeah, Um Right. So there's this great quote from Eric Schmidt, uh, the head of Google or former head of Google. I'm not sure. Um, former, I where think. He's, where he said, uh, I think people don't want Google to be uh, answering their questions. I think they want Google to be telling them what to do before they even know that they have a question. It was something like that. It's not the exact quote. But I thought it was a very revealing idea is it kind of um, Google becomes the, the, our trustee. Uh, so um, as opposed to um, a kind of just a utility answering questions, it's, it's more sort of nudging and steering thought into channels that seem uh, desirable to Google. And it's not simply a profit motive. If, if that were the case, you know, 
then what we'd be talking about here is just a kind of cynical um, exploitation or something. But it's not that. If you look at Google's um, priorities in the realm of search, which is its core business, what you see is this quite um, paternal, maternal, I'm not sure which, um, mentality of wanting to um, create a choice architecture, right? This is the nudge idea. Uh, one that will be sort of salutary and uh, embody the right values. So you're not just giving people what they think they want. You're giving people op- choices that are um, highly curated. Yeah. And as we've seen, that curation uh, is a highly political Thing. I mean, the tech firms are now this, like, they've dropped the facade and are intervening in elections with perfect openness, yeah. right? Um, so the, it's, it's quite breathtaking. The, um, you know, the, the, the democratic pretense has been dropped. And we're now ta- talking about full blown technocratic um, paternalism. Uh, and I think it's it's enraging people, really. It's really feeding this sense that our institutions are uh, um, are out of control with this kind of this uh, this um, expertise that feels empowered to simply take things in hand um, and suppress dissent or or even try to manage the information environment in such a way that other possibilities don't even show up. Right? Now we're, we're off the rails um, in so many ways. And I, I, I think that what you just said is, you know, deeply uh, disturbing. And I think economists, you know, include myself in this shame, shamefully that, Oh, they're just trying to make money. And, and, and of course there's constraints, there's competition. Eventually there'll be, they'll be, they'll have trouble. They'll, they'll they always have, well, yeah. there will be. There has been. There always is. When 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 firms are thought to be invincible, it's surprising how often they turn out to have competitors. It always appears like this time will be different. Maybe it will be. Um, maybe they will struggle to. Uh, they won't struggle to maintain their situation. But I, you know, I'm thinking about IBM, which was invincible. Uh, the car, the big three. They'll never have. They have got, a, got a car, effectively a cartel. We think of a lot of the OPEC. We can think of lots of cases where. Competition seemed unlikely, and yet it came along. But put that to the side. I think that the deeper point you're making is that these folks, first of all, they have a lot of, they have so much profit. They can, they can indulge in all kinds of things that have nothing to do with profit, and they do. Um, they're states, right? In, they're in quasi-governmental quasi. entities. I don't know. I don't want to say that. I, I think that I don't. You can say it, but I, I'm a little uncomfortable saying that. I think the. I think the question is, what do we do about it? And then the challenge there is the traditional methods of antitrust, I think, don't work very well. They don't apparently hurt consumers the way the old school monopoly did by jacking up prices. Google's still as cheap as it ever was, zero. But yeah. that's hiding what the real real price I'm going to read the quote from the book, which I thought was um, thought-provoking about Google. And we can say a little bit more about it, and we'll, we'll take it home. But you say um, – Has anyone bothered to ask why the world's largest advertising firm, for that is what Google is, is making a massive investment in automobiles? By colonizing your commute, currently something you do, an actual activity in the tangible world that demands your attention, 
with yet another tether to the all-consuming logic of surveillance and profit, those precious 52 minutes, the commute, of your attention are now availed to be auctioned off to the highest bidder. The patterns of your movements through the world will be made available to those who wish to know you more intimately for the sake of developing a deep proprietary science of steering your behavior. Self-driving cars must be understood as one more escalation in the war to claim and monetize every moment of life that might otherwise offer a bit of private headspace. Yeah. Um, I guess we could just stop there. Yeah, we could. Um, should I be afraid of that? Is it scary that they're monetizing that? That they're, I mean, don't I like it? When I show up in a town because Google and Google knows I've got the plane reservation because they've read my email and they know I buy coffee because they've seen my Amazon orders and they tell me where the best coffee shop is. So I think uh, – go ahead. Well, is there – They anticipate there, my question. My question is where's the best coffee shop? They just immediately yeah. just send it to me when I land. As soon as I land, they know I've landed and they send me the best coffee shop. Well, I guess what we're talking about in this – even in this fairly benign version – uh, that you've just articulated is um, is still a, f- a kind of a fundamentally different way of inhabiting the world. So maybe um, right. So what is the the source of unease about this? Somehow that there's this benevolent entity, you know, surrounding me and presenting options to me that are you know optimized based on my previous behavior. It means that I'm right. I'm sort of a, de- a determinate uh, thing that's known. In fact, Google knows me better than I know myself because they've more systematically looked at my past behavior and, and found the patterns that I'm not even aware of. Yeah. So, right. So I start to be maybe like a sort of a test particle in this sort of field of forces um, being managed beyond the, the, the rim of my awareness. I don't know. Does that creep you out? It does. No. It does. Yeah. But so, but your book, and we'll close on this, your book uh, stands at the barricades and says, stop. Your book says, this is not a world we were made to live in. It, it, we've, we will lose something precious when we are those particles being pushed around by behavioral incentives. And um, we're going to be pretty lonely. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to your view. I think that's because I'm something of a 19th century person in a 21st century world. How are you going to get other people to join you? You wrote a book, which is great. And I think it's an eloquent defense of serendipity and, and giving up these things. But um, I wonder if most people would are, are on our side. Well, you just mentioned, uh, you used the word lonely, which, which prompted a, a thought for me. Um, right. So the picture we've just laid out of being a test particle in this field of forces or a kind of determinately known entity. Um, is a, it is a very lonely picture. Um, and I'm reminded of Hannah Arendt, who talked about social atomization as one of the preconditions for totalitarianism. And so. Insofar as you're, I don't know, I don't know if this case can really be made that um, 
the kind of the way we normally know about the world is by interacting with other people. Um, and there's a, you know, we're embedded in communities. I think right now with the, with the COVID pandemic, we're really feeling this heightened atomization. It's almost like a turbocharged version of the trajectory we've been on. Um, so atomization is one element to worry about, but there's this other great bit in, in Hannah Arendt where she talks about bureaucracy um, as the rule of nobody, as, as the way she put it. So what she, ta- what she means is that... It's the administrative um, state. Yeah, it means there's no... There's, well, it's not just the administrative state. It's also um, all these commercial entities that sort of order our lives in very far-reaching ways, but which you can't address. So just, just yesterday, I got my first cell phone bill from AT&T after getting a new phone. And it's wildly different from what I agreed to in the store. So, you know, the usual thing I call, I'm, I was on hold for literally an hour before giving up. I'm going to try again today. But it's the sense that you, there's, no, there's no one you can grab hold of by the lapels and hold to account. And she points out that that is the definition of tyranny, power that is not accountable, right? And is not um, kind of operating with your best interest at heart. So that experience is endemic in modern life of interacting with bureaucracies that you can't even address yourself to. There's no one to, you you know, you can't get angry at the poor schmuck in the call center, right? So... Uh, this feeling of being subject to the rule of nobody, she suggests, Hannah Arendt, that this is the source of the, the simmering rage that so many people feel. This is in the context of where she's talking about protest movements in the 1960s. And of course, we're living through a similar episode now, sort of rage. And I have to think that this feeling of being subject to an arbitrary, unaccountable power that you cannot address is playing a significant role in, uh, in this moment of rage. So that's obviously uh, an element in when we're talking about uh, life being ordered by algorithmic uh, firms that are utterly opaque. My guest today has been Matthew Crawford. His book is Why We Drive. Matthew, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.